Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. He's trying to not do his Irish accent. I know, you know, I'm trying to mix it up. I'm sorry. Let Channeling me... angry German guy. Why? Let me introduce our guest. Who can say? Who can... <laughs> so our Just guest today is Katrin Jolon Kolscher, and she is the president and CEO of Girls Who Invest. Previously, she was a managing director at Goldman Sachs as well as the National Director of Goldman Sachs' 10,000 Businesses, an initiative that provides education, capital, and business support to entrepreneurs. And I did a little Google creep and also noticed you were in one org. Which, it was. Yes. Fellow, and, uh, fellow Irish. We talked about Irish Bono at the last podcast. Did you really? Yeah, uh-huh. we had a question uh, in our last podcast. He's an exceptional If you could invite human. one uh-huh. guest, not in our industry, who would it be? And we picked Elvis Presley and Bono, two very different people. I but, picked Bono. Oddly, but then they were making fun of my hair growing long, and I said, I'm going to grow it longer than Bono. Yeah. 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 But we yeah. might, we might talk might about Bono a little bit later. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Exceptional yeah. human. <laughs> he is a great guy, although I don't know him personally, but maybe you do. I think he's trying to look like Jesus. It's this mess. Stop it, John. Scient messianite. Catherine, welcome. We appreciate you coming here, even though you're probably questioning what you're doing here at this time, but I, 30 minutes from now, you'll be very happy. So we'll go, we'll go with the first question and just leg into this. What inspired you to leave your previous role to join and lead Girls Who Invest? Uh, what have your experiences been like in finance over the years? And, and maybe that presumes that you might start by saying a little bit about what Girls Who Invest actually is yes. and um, what the focus is. I just, just to, I think it's probably clear, but. Sure. Thank yeah. you both. Thank you for having <laughs> Girls Who Invest and, and myself on. So we are very proud that at Girls Who Invest, we're working to transform the investment management industry to look like the world around it by helping women have access to frontline investing roles and in investment management, starting as interns through to leadership roles. So how do we recruit talent to the field, advance talent and reward talent in their roles? I was very fortunate to have a great career in finance. I was at Goldman Sachs for 11 years, running 10,000 small businesses, as Ronan said. And there I had a lot of exposure. I had mentorship, I had sponsorship, and a lot of the things that we're trying to instruct the industry on what to do, I benefited from firsthand. And so there's an irony there that I was in a non-revenue role with a lot of the access that- <laughs> They that, allow that, that at other, Goldman Sachs? They do, they do. I, <laughs> yeah. I added a lot of value. Yeah, I will say that. Um, most importantly, the program added a lot of value. But Can you actually tell us a little bit about that? Because I've never sure. heard of that and we work with Goldman all yep. the time. So 10,000 small businesses works across the U.S. and U.K., to give businesses access to education and capital. And ultimately, the businesses that go through 10,000 small businesses are businesses anywhere from an HVAC company to a dry cleaner to a tech company. So it's not what you would think of as a potential client of Goldman Sachs, but instead it's the businesses that are driving the economy and often under-recognized in what they do. Oh, cool. Um, And that pivots nicely to, to kind of how I came to Girls Who Invest because it was the same idea. If you give access to education and expose women to high-performing, high-paying jobs, it becomes an incredible opportunity to advance their own um, financial stability as well as to have rewarding careers. So when I was approached to join Girls Who Invest, that's what really struck me is how do you scale an organization like we scale 10,000 small businesses to really help people 
and um, re- realize their full potential. Well, I know, I know from um, looking at the website too, because I actually do prep for these things. Um, Rona um, <laughs> does less, but um, I did notice from the website, you have, uh, I mean, the list of your supporters and people mm-hmm. who are affiliated with you is really quite impressive and mm-hmm. very large. It's sort of a who's who of uh, folks in the asset management industry and, and also some self-side firms as well, I think. How do you think about the different parts of the industry in terms of um, promotion of women um, and uh, finding roles for women as between kind of uh, – because my sense is, you know, I've been – Doing this for some time. There'll be a question at some point. I there, there, wait, okay, all this, right. This Just give me a chance, podcast, okay? Yeah. Give me a chance. I'm, yeah. I'm forming the question. He's okay? warming up. It's going to be a gem. Yes. When it's done, I, I it's going to be a gem. I want to know what John's sense of the industry yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. That if it varies our own. Yeah. No, no, no. But there <laughs> like was when a, I was a young lad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, John. Over to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. It seems to me that there was, you know, a time where it felt like women were much more likely to be represented in, in um, support function roles in legal, compliance, risk, um, various other kind of mm-hmm. components like that, less in business roles. And my sense is that, but tell me if I'm wrong about this, that women have maybe made more strides on, at least in parts of the buy side than the sell side, but that, but that may be, that may be wrong. Where, where, how, how do you, view the pace of um, women's um, advances in different parts of the industry? How do you compare the different segments? So we we do work across all asset classes. We we focus exclusively on the buy side, but we work with sell side firms in the sense that a multi-strategy firm might have sell side roles, but we focus on the buy side roles within those. And the reason for that is we actually think that the the biggest gap in terms of gender equity is within investing roles. Mm-hmm. So when you think about how many women portfolio managers do you know? That's I'll, true. I'll answer the question for you as well. Yeah. Thank you for your answer. I love your answer, but not enough, right? And I think that it's true. There aren't, yeah. you can't, like, you often can't even rattle off more than 10 in, in, a, in a conversation that's informal. So what we think is critically important is that portfolios need to be managed with diverse uh, perspectives of people of all genders, of all ethnicities. And by having people bring their lived experience and cognitive diversity to the table, funds are going to perform better. So that's why we focus exclusively on the buy side. I think in terms of the industry has come a really long way, particularly in the last five years, which is incredibly exciting. But from a girls who invest perspective, we literally can't go fast enough. I think there's a lot of organizations right now rightfully celebrating um, being close to to gender equality in their entry-level classes, which is awesome, and I don't want to shortchange that accomplishment. It still includes a lot of support function or what I would call non-revenue roles. Mm -hmm. So what I would like to see is 50% gender equity and beyond um, on investing teams because Mm -hmm. it's important that those classes are 50% women are near 50% and gender parity is important, but it's also, you have to look several layers down and say like, wait, who's doing what job? And are, are the investing teams inclusive of women and gender non-binary individuals? And there's still a large gap there. Mm-hmm. And I would think that it's not just a question of bringing um, uh, a more diverse perspective to those roles, but also frankly, just finding the best talent and the best people for a particular roles. So given the fact, as you point out, there's very, that gross underrepresentation in those particular roles, there's bound to be an awful lot of talent out there that is just 
unutilized, underutilized. Um, and so Completely. finding what, yeah. Um, so, cause certainly, I mean, there's just, there, there's like the right skill set, but also particularly for kind of portfolio management roles, you have to have, um, kind of the right mindset and the right, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of temperament and personality or whatever. In general, my sense is that women are, um, better anchored than most men on most measures of emotional me maturity. Have you I don't know. Staring at just me? because I, we should I, put this on video because you're the, yes, you're the foil that I use. For, okay. Um, yeah. I'm a man's man. Okay. Yeah, in any that, event. That's shocking. So, there you go. And we do believe in gender diversity. So it's not that I, I'm happy if there's an all female team, but it's not, yeah. I mean, it's gender equity on all yes. levels, including non-binary. So it's, um, yep. I think it's in, I think when you run an organization called Girls Who Invest, we often have people come to us and say, I would love to volunteer, but is that okay? I identify male. And I'm like, absolutely. Like there's, yeah. you, you're incredibly important to the sponsorship of individuals. So it's not about exclusion, but instead um, including. Makes sense. I mean, a question we had is um, like, who, who signs up for Girls Who Invest and more specifically, uh, what are the democratics and what do you do to make sure? Did I say democratics? Democratics. democratics. <laughs> yes, but I yeah, think we that's have, how they say it in Ireland. And Catherine that's North yeah, is. Yeah, she's a citizen. Exactly. <laughs> you're you're a, drinking. You're a fake. Yeah. drinking lime water. You're drinking um, lime what are the demographics and what do you do to make sure you have a diverse group? So we spend a lot of time on this and I appreciate the question. We, we focus our entry level talent is college students who are in their rising junior year. And I'd like to give a big shout out to Tess, who is your intern, who brought us all together today. And I think speaks to kind of the She created the question that I misread. (laughs) She's very good. You'll answer to her after this podcast. I'm sorry, Tess. (laughs) Um, So I, I ultimately we're trying to focus on entry level talent and then bring that talent through to advancing their careers, ultimately into leadership roles. What is so powerful about what we're doing is our 2000 alumni. So we have 2000 alumni nine, eight years, 69% people of color. They come from 180 different colleges and universities and have over 70 distinct majors. So if you say, Catherine, I'd, you know, I'd love to have a finance major from an elite school. That's great. There are finance majors from elite schools who go through Girls Who Invest, but we're as excited about somebody who goes to a less known feeder to finance and could be a music major or a German okay. major and, and help introduce them to investment management. That's great. I was just going to ask that question. It's only finance, but it's not. So it's well, it's only investment management, yeah. but we're not looking for finance yes. backgrounds yes. because quite frankly, the firms are good at recruiting yep. individuals from elite schools to yeah. go to kind of what finance. they do. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have this story that I like to tell where someone who has been very genuine, it was a learning moment, said to me, you know, Catherine, I know this great school to recruit from. And I said, oh my God, what is it? What is it? What is it? He said, the University of Virginia. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's an elite school. <laughs> Whoever heard of them? That's way out there. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's like, that's the mind shift yeah. that still needs to happen with certain individuals and not to have that kind of allegiance to what sport they played or what college they went to or what major they had or who they may have, you know, seen socially on the weekends. And how do you instead say, I'm going to learn so much from somebody who's so different than I am. And these are Intellectual curiosity to me is foundational to investment management. We teach people how to work in spreadsheets and model and kind of what the different asset classes are. That's all trainable. What's not trainable is like, how do you think, or as I said, are you intellectually curious? Do you have a passion for the intensity of these jobs? And that's, it's, we find that in human beings and then we can catapult their careers through the training. Even when I worked on the sell side, I sort of noticed that when our intern class 
it was almost competition between the brokers as to how many Ivy Leaguers they yeah. could have. And no offense to these kids, they were obviously very, very smart. Mm-hmm. And but it, it, their personalities weren't as diverse as you would think. And we found that having people from like smaller schools, like I'll give a shout out to a guy, Rich Steiner, I worked with from, he went to Westchester in Pennsylvania, which I'd never even heard of the school before. I never and heard of it either. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you've met him. He's a fantastic I guy. I have, and I have he, great he respect for Rich. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Except he doesn't like your school. Yeah. Anyway. But no, no, no. He's just, he's a bit uh, undereducated, but that's, uh, but that's, uh, no, I'm kidding. He's a great guy and it's a great school. He probably listens to this. Thanks. Sure. All right. Yeah. Do you want to ask you a question? I thought it was a very good question and timely. Well, oh no, I was going to ask a different question. Okay, ask you a different question. Jesus, ask it <laughs> no, in under 30 so, seconds. Please. So from what you said, Catherine, it is, uh, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people would agree. He actually this. does prepare. Yeah, okay? I actually yeah, do. Yeah. So there have been a lot of like um, progress uh, in probably in a variety of different companies in kind of providing more of a balance in terms of entry level. But as you, but as you indicated, for certain types of positions, portfolio management is one and variety of senior positions. Um, that, that there's, it's a very different kind of profile. What, what are the main blockers that you think, uh, that, that continue to exist? Um, clearly from the, the diversity and number of firms that are profiled on your website, you've not had trouble getting people to commit to this as a goal, but there clearly are, but what are the points of resistance? And in particular, for a long time, the conventional wisdom was, for families in particular, they're interested in having children. Women, you know, continue to sort of bear the brunt mm-hmm. of the sort of the the career sacrifice, if you will, that goes along with that. Yeah, what- I think that there's there's kind of universal needs, and then there are things that are milestones in one's life events. So on the universal side, I think that there has historically been a lack of. Um, intentional mentorship and sponsorship programs and kind of describing the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Your mentor is somebody who's going to help you navigate your career. You can go and say like, I bombed in a meeting or I'm really nervous about this. I'm thinking about having a child. Can you help me navigate that? That's the mentor's role. It's kind of the raw advice. The sponsor is the person who might not even engage with you as frequently, but is going to pull you up in those advancement and promotion discussions and say, you know what? I had the most amazing meeting with Tess today and I want to put her on this project because she is going to excel and I see the talent there. So let's give her that opportunity. Or when we talked about the candidates who were up for promotion, we didn't talk about three people that I really think we should raise. So that's more the sponsorship role. And I think that there need to be tighter watch within organizations and leaders need to be promoting mentorship and sponsorship and saying like, who is a mentor? People are going to say, oh, mentorship programs are hard. They don't always click. You never, you don't always like the person, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you build the capacity within organizations is key. I think another thing that's really just historically lacking and is really, really hard to do is manager training to manage people from diverse populations. Mm -hmm. That could be gender diversity. That could be socioeconomic diversity. That could be diversity of thought. But for the most part, no one's received DEI training or managing people across different populations and different needs. So somebody, and I think it's uncomfortable, right? And especially as I'm excited that we're welcoming a new generation into the workforce. We work exclusively with Gen Z and I see a much 
much higher comfort level talking about things. And it can get uncomfortable being on the other side of that when someone <laughs> comes in and is like, I'm going to talk to you. Like I felt excluded in that meeting and I'm going to tell you why. And it's like, oh boy, who who's here for this conversation, right? I think that's a lot of people's natural reaction. Yes. Um, so there's there's a lot to navigate in terms of equipping managers to, be, to support the populations that we want to see more highly represented in the workplace. They're supporting the individual through mentorship and sponsorship. We're huge advocates for pay transparency. I think that it's people don't know the career paths they're on. They don't realize like if I might have a really intense four years, but coming out of that four years, I may have traveled the world, literally. I may have had the, you know, the financial comfort to experience new things. And I'm on a career path to do really interesting work and make a rewarding income that can help me support my family, whether that be elder care or siblings who have needs. And I think that's not talked about in a way. It's almost taboo or it's competitive. And it's like, oh, you know, like there's this secret box once you make this level and no one knows how much you make in that box. And it's like, why not? And by the way, everyone now talks about compensation. So if you have a Gen Z member on your team and you're listening to this podcast, they know how much everybody else makes. So by keeping it secret, you're just harming your own ability to manage that population. It used to be almost a terminatable offense to tell people. It was. Made, yeah. I mean, it so, would be like if people found out they, that you had shared your comp. They knew your was, base range, but uh, not subjective bonus. No. Yep. And, and is, is that is that already coming out more and more like that people are transparent with that? People are very transparent with their yeah. compensation. One of the things that is interesting for me to see is that there's also a lot of social media resources right now with what compensation is within okay. the industry. So they're also triangulating compensation by yep. filling out surveys. And then you can look that up on social and say like, wow, this is what's We had a making. guest on here. He's anonymous. It's called Lit- Liquidity. Yeah, that's exactly. Yes. It, and I that, saw They put one. that out. Yeah. Oh, you know okay. about him. Yeah. 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 We don't know who he is, but we had to hide <laughs> I mean, his voice no, and everything. Yeah, I think he had like but, a bag over his head or <laughs> well, well yeah. he's the only time we, it was early in COVID. He was one of our first remote ones and he literally did it from a cell phone on the street. But, um, yeah, we didn't really have to hide his voice. It sounded like shit anyway. <laughs> but it was a really, it was a really good podcast and he has a big following. And he's a when huge you said following. it, I, that was the it's one exactly thing I remember it. reading that. They, okay. Every, our alumni are always talking to me about the, the data that they pull off of liquidity oh, and, oh, and what they know from the compensation studies. And they use that to negotiate their compensation. Um, so, and I think that's awesome. Yep. Right. And it's, and it's happening. So the more firms are kind of worried about it, if you just provide transparency, it'll settle. And it'll also help with pay equity, which is obviously John complains about, about compensation. Well, I do. Time. I'd like to be a little more transparent about my, which yeah, is I'm to say that I'm not making enough. Why don't you do it now? <laughs> uh, do it yeah. now. Well, that's just <laughs> he, he's he's about it. You don't want to know. Everybody will be just like, oh my God, he makes that oh much. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> probably, I probably, but, I, but I, I, we probably should I, move I on. do have a question <laughs> on manager training, right? Because yeah. e- even training anybody to be a good manager, uh, and I'm probably viewing it from an old school world, but do, do you guys help with uh, the training of managers? Or are you saying you train the people who go through Girls Who Invest? We who train invest. the people yeah. who go yeah. through Girls Who Invest. That being said, we have so much alumni programming and that's only growing. So as we we work, just to give you a sense of our volume, our very first class in 2016 was 30 women. Our class this summer going through Girls Who Invest is 550 women. So we are growing at incredible scale. So our 2000 alumni, right? And at the end of August, we'll have 2,500 alumni. Yeah. So we're thinking a lot more about the, the question you're asking is how do we work with our partner firms? And as John mentioned, we're really lucky to work with the most prestigious firms in the business. How do we work with 
with them and have these conversations. We have a lot of those behind closed doors and the receptivity to them is incredibly high, which is awesome and inspiring. And then we think about like, what's the product that we should be putting into market so that we can help achieve scale at this. So we're thinking about manager training. We're thinking about interventions at different points in one's career so that they come back to us and we can continue to support them. Um, And the data there is really interesting. Right now, we we have over um, 200 ambassadors, which is what we call our mentors working with our interns this summer. And our ambassadors, we put through intense training because of that understanding intersectionality and how do you support individuals from diverse populations. And you kind of said it so, but and, and, and this is not meant in a joking way, right? It starts as girls who invest, but as this organization, you know, 10 years from now, uh, do the girls who invest who are now women working 15 years into their career do they still come back and they're part of this program or? That's the goal, right? So our our quote unquote oldest alumni right now, right? They started as a rising (laughs) junior is, you know, several years into into her career. So five or so years into her career. Spring Um, chicken. They're spring chickens to us. But I think to them, they're like, you know, they're they're, they're incredibly seasoned by today's times. And, And I will say that any one of our alumni could push me out of the job market like toe to toe, I would lose if I went back to when I was five years into my career. I mean, their level of impressiveness just far exceeds any accomplishment that I had. And I think that that speaks volumes to them. And it's also, I think it's going to help with the equity piece because um, they're, they're putting themselves forward with a greater level of confidence and understanding of who they are. So in terms of, so Ronan mentioned this other um, question that I had, my, my, um, very timely. I thought it was uh, a very good question. question. Thank you. Um, so people are aware of recent Supreme Court decision, mm-hmm. um, in terms of use of, um, uh, at least certain types of affirmative action, uh, programs for higher education has been ruled unconstitutional. There's a lot of discussion already about what that means for hiring practices. Mm-hmm. How do you see that? Or have you started to think about, um, are there implications for this? And having said that, I, you know, sort of acknowledge that, um, you, you have not, not, not at any one point, um, to this point mentioned sort of said quotas or talked about quotas or, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but how do you think it impacts what the, the goals of what your organization is trying to achieve, if at all? We think it impacts us hugely, and we think that we have to help solve the problem that has just been recreated. We put out a statement the day of the Supreme Court's ruling. We are devastated by it. I think that history is getting lost in the current times, and affirmative action in different forms, so whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in collegiate admissions, has been a long-standing practice since the 1960s, and the need to undo decades and decades of progress is astounding to us, Mm -hmm. especially when at the end of the day, we believe in access and equity. And that is the intent of affirmative action. And for people to be able to have a door open for them for their application to be considered is a basic human right. And for that to have been taken away is astounding to us. And I think that we, we recruit a talent population that's in college. And ultimately, a decision was made that is going to decrease the diversity of colleges mm-hmm. and suppress populations that have been historically underserved in the United States down. So we're, we're fired up and we're going <laughs> to do all that we can. And, and I'll, I'll pair this with a story, I think, of the implications of the past two years. We run our um, summer intensive program in the month of June. 
So we have hundreds of women on Wharton's campus. They're going through our training and we, we take them up to New York for different days when they kind of see industry. And last year we had our women up in New York for the day. So it was in a woman of a room of 200 plus women and Roe v. Wade got re- reversed. Mm, mm. It is an emotional moment mm-hmm. to be in a room of 200 generation Z women when something like that happens. Fast forward to this year, we're graduating our women from the program. They're on the eve of going to their internships and affirmative action gets reversed. And we're in our most diverse cohort ever for our summer intensive program, 75% people of color, one third individuals from historically underrepresented communities, 20% individuals from public universities and first-gen college students like this. I'm even lowballing some of my stats. I'm going to need Elena to correct me on these. (laughs) Um, And it, it, to be in a room of the populations that are being impacted by these decisions is a visual that I wish everybody had. I wish people could see the tears and the upset and the personal and hear the personal stories that come out because this is so much about individuals and it's not about politics. And I think that's what's gotten lost. So it's been, you know, we're going to look really closely on how we can push through and rise above and, and see opportunity to help and assist because that's what we get to do as a nonprofit. But something structural happened that we think is incredibly problematic. Yeah, it's deflating to say the least. So, you yeah, know, especially I, I can imagine that group getting together, sort of being your your. It's it's nuts. Like I, I we, we had family arguments over the weekend on this on some guests, and I, I'm like I'm like who the who's in support of this because they're not admitting it out loud as much, right? right? Yeah. Well, at some point, is if if you're successful, um, if there is enough success uh, potentially in getting women in positions of influence and senior positions in terms of creating hiring hiring policies that itself can be helpful and important right but it just means that i guess at a minimum it means that people have to be that much more scrupulous about the way that they design those programs Mm -hmm. um, so that they are not seen to be doing (laughs) too too much to correct that imbalance, which again, seems like an odd, an odd result, an odd way to look at it. Uh, But one of the things that's been done is the conversation now is so much harder, right? Like we're we're trying to give people access to education and opportunity. And now it's like, we're all going to have to have these tangential conversations in order to achieve the same result, which is, which is maddening. That's crazy. Um, So I want to go back to the the finance industry. So it's, it's 2023. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's it's surprising that there still are fewer women in leadership roles. Yeah. And I'm not in any way suggesting like it, it's a, it's at a good place. I'm asking, why do you think that is, and has it gotten better? Like, is is there progress at least? Or there's definitely progress, yeah. and I think that's something that we I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. I think even <laughs> ten years ago, it would have been hard for our you know Rolodex. We've all been laughing that Rolodexes don't exist anymore, but you know, that, our, that our Rolodex in Ireland they still different. call vacuum cleaners Hoovers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know if there's a brand new one right now. Like, Get the Hoover. I'm like, my wife's American. Say, what the hell was that? Vacuum like, cleaner. Yeah. A Rolodex. The I, Rolodex. I had a Rolodex. <laughs> exactly. It's I can cool. hear it right now flipping. <laughs> um, so I think that we, you know, we're incredibly lucky that there's the momentum behind the industry uh, or within the industry, I should say. And because there wasn't this momentum 10 years ago, 15 years, 20 years ago, as far back as, as, as we want to discuss, there's fewer women 
to have been tapped into leadership roles, yeah. right? And it's, it becomes, so how do you solve for that? And do you help people get promoted more quickly as they should have anyway, right? Because there's been this kind of um, this lag for women being promoted on equal footing to other populations. And then there's a lot of hesitation around hiring people without the steeped expertise of, um, do you have to be an investor for the past 20 years to be in a leadership role? There's a lot of reasons to answer yes to that question. There's also, I know some pretty incredible human beings who did some amazing things in their lives and ended up in very senior finance leadership roles, and you never would have charted their path, but they were incredibly high revenue producers and doing incredible work. So I think there needs to be more receptivity to saying, this is a transferable skill set. It doesn't look like the skill set that we historically seen, but there's a transferable skill set. And what's really important is the cultural buy-in so that when that person, typically a woman or non, a gender non-binary individual comes into the organization, it's like, oh, that was a, you know, that was a diversity hire. That's my, like, would people say that out loud? I'm like, you mean that incredibly accomplished (laughs) individual who is by far more credentialed than anybody I'm talking to in this conversation, not you all, but I mean, like, whoever raises that with me and I'm saying, why are, why are you taking that person down a notch before you've even met them or they've started in the role? And that's where the cultural piece needs to come in and say, like, we're going to look for talent that's going to be a right fit for us. And you need to trust us that we're going to make sure that they're, that they have the skill set. And I assume it's, it would be fair to question in some cases whether, whether, whether they're, you know, examples of, young, super smart men that maybe don't have all of the traditional um, requirements for a particular role that might be looked at more carefully Completely. Um, than, uh, uh, you, you know, because of the unique attributes that they have. You hear um, stories so. all the time about, oh, have you met that person? They made partner at 26, you yeah, know, yeah, and that yeah. was so impressive. How often is that person a woman? Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I agree with you completely, John. I think it's kind of that ambition gets celebrated differently and recognized differently based on gender and other demographics. And again, I'm very optimistic that that's changing. Um, but I think it needs to be talked about in order to continue yeah. to change. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm definitely not saying, Hey, it's changing. Be patient, ladies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, I'm genuinely asking. Is it changing? It is changing yeah. for sure. No, yeah. it's a great question yeah. and it's absolutely changing. I think the dialogue's changing. I think the access is changing. And I think some there's leadership roles are particularly complicated because there aren't enough people who have historically been next in line to step up into those roles who are women. So then you have to say, are we going to look outside of the industry? Yeah. And, and and do you find that it's sort of geographically in terms of uh, different jurisdictions, um, a- appetite and desire to reach these kind of goals? For, so, for example, one of the goals of your organization, as I understand it, is to have 30% of the world's investable capital managed by women by 2030, mm-hmm. um, which seems like perfectly uh, sensible goal. Is is that something that where you think there's a lot of buy-in by companies across borders, or does it matter a lot? Before you before you answer it, is there is there any data on what percentage is managed by women already? Like, now, because yeah, because we, we we you know we joined like an environmental group, like our employees. We we have this employee group, and the targets they set for like carbon emissions and stuff like that for 2015. It seems like that I love this initiative because people maybe it's people on Wall Street they love targets, yep. and if you say 30% by 30, 30% is 30%. It's not 50%. I'm yep. like, 
Are we even close to 30% now? No. Okay. That's surprising. Yeah. We're in, and the data here is, is very hard because it's, it's, it straddles public and private data. And needless to say, the private data is not frequently shared. So we're confident it's below 10%. It could be as low as two to 5%. Really? And based on asset class, it differs too. So some asset classes are performing with more gender equity than, than others. So it's, there's a long, this is a, a long way to go in a relatively short period of time. So how do you envision getting there? Like first setting the goal and like, yep. Yeah. Talking about it is huge. And it, admittedly, it's our vision. So I think it's partly being able to have the conversations like, what would it take to get here? Yeah. Um, and then it, it it's about, accelerating careers. And it's also about, we touched on this a little bit earlier, like what it, what it takes for retention. And I think culture really matters. I think culture of organizations is changing. I think it's going to have to change more rapidly. Um, and as we talked about earlier, I think there's going to need to be the mentorship, the sponsorship, the, the pay, um, the, the exposure on compensation potential. And we, we touched on life moments a little bit, right? I think that the, Gen Z is much more savvy about wellness um, and kind of needing full wellness programs. I think they're also more comfortable talking about it, but it's about elder care is huge, right? We have an aging parent population and grandparent population. So I think, you know, child care is often the most talked about, but I think elder care, mental health care, um, in self-care are going to be equally important um, and things that we need to address in the culture of organizations because these are intense jobs. There's no doubt about it, but there need to be support systems in place to help retain people and to recognize where you are in a life stage um, and how there might need to be more flexibility based on that life stage. Now, I've been one of the questions we've been um, uh, asked to ask is about intersectionality, mm-hmm. which is one of those words that just like makes me crazy. I'll admit I Googled it today. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay, so you know. So you know more than I do. I saw it. this whole Scottish study on it and I still left scratching my head. So I'm hoping you can do a better definition than I okay, could Google. Okay, well, you know, and I'm a blank slate. I got no idea what that was. So, yeah, uh, anything you talk about. I think about, I have a mini grasp on it. So intersectionality is it a, 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 it's complicated in the sense that it's often um, not understood and not talked about. Intersectionality is recognize that individuals have multiple identities. So I am, I identify as a woman. I identify as a CEO. I identify as somebody who grew up from an underprivileged socioeconomic background. And those are Two of those things you could probably guess about me based on my resume and and um, potentially how you would visually evaluate my gender, but other things you might not know. I could identify as a different gender, and you would you wouldn't necessarily know that. People often don't realize my socioeconomic status growing up. So it's how do you think about the intersectionality of your different identities and recognize that in a human being and say like, okay, well you're Irish, what does that mean to you? And what is like, how did that inform your lived experience? Um, And I think that oftentimes people assume that what you see is what you know about an individual and you can share so much more about yourself or you may choose not to share about yourself, but that's what everybody, what everybody is. I think because to give a personal example, because I grew up in New York and I work in finance, people often assume that I grew up from a different background than I did. And I had a great, great growing up, but I went to school on financial aid and I understand what it means to pay back student loans and how to go paycheck to paycheck when you first get out of school. And people assume like, oh, you grew up in New York, 
you're you're good, right? And so that's a very easy example of intersectionality. But we think about it in terms of race, um, religious beliefs, sexual identity, gender, kind of every aspect of an individual's and, experience. And so how does that fit into or how is it relevant to hiring practices and or promotional practices? Is it, it is it fair to guess, for example, that if employers are more aware of the full spectrum of identities that people have mm-hmm. or sort of all of the, you know, understand all about that person, not just um, kind of the traditional attributes that they're in a better position to figure out how they can be helpful and to promote them and to... to uh, how do they get that information? Like Ronan, for example, has no idea uh, about my background I and mean, still... It's like acts like he has you, you no. You talk clue about it every time we do a podcast. Okay. Well, so, so the whole yeah. world knows what you've yeah. done. All right, anyway. you're a walking resume. Okay, all right. I love you, John. Yeah. But like, Let's, so how does a company know about right. these things? And then is you, you don't put out questionnaires because then right. some people don't even like to put down. People what might not self-identify. Yeah. Um, I think that it's it's having a shared language as an organizational culture that allows the space to share or not share and doesn't lead with assumptions. So it's more about saying, like, let's do something after work. Let's do something social after work. What do people want to do? Right. Yeah. And people might want to play pickleball or they might want to go bowling or and it, it might not be going to get drinks yep. because some people might choose not to drink or they might not want to do the sports because they I'm giving easy examples. Um, but it's it's having that lens of how do we talk in a workplace where it's not assuming that you as a leader in the organization and you as a leader in the organization expect people to be a certain way, but you're leaving the space for people to bring their authentic selves to work. And then often they'll share more. And I think that from a manager perspective, coming back to that, people need, again, training on how do you have these conversations and how do you manage people who have different identities? Because it's hard, right? And I'm trying to use um, quote unquote easy examples because hopefully they'll resonate. But if you're thinking about a work dinner and somebody's first work trip, Right. Yep. If somebody says, you know, Catherine, let's go out to dinner. It's like, what? Like, <laughs> do I order first? Do I not order first? Yeah. Should I have a drink? Should I not have a drink? Like, and then it's like, oh, you want tomorrow? We're going to like hit the links. Do you want to go play golf? I'm like, I've never played golf a day in my life. Like, that is literally <laughs> yeah. one of the most intimidating things to me. So if somebody said that, I'd be like, Ronan, can I get out of this? <laughs> yeah. Right. But like, do, but instead say like, let's all, like, let's all do something tomorrow. What should we, right. what should I we do? I shouldn't tell you the last activity that we did. We went to a bar <laughs> and we threw axes, remember? Oh, I yeah. do remember that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't throw the axes. I didn't, I was worried about getting anywhere. Near Ronan with an axe, uh, so I did not go into the cage. As but, you're saying it, the, yeah. Catherine's explaining, I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> what if your people asked to throw axes? Yeah. Then you're good. It wasn't my idea, but I supported it. But, yeah, it was, but, yeah. but, but, but all of this. I mean, axes and alcohol, what could go wrong? <laughs> I know, a lot. It, it was not safe, actually. <laughs> but, 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 this, but, but all of the setup for that is that you're actually physically in the office to be able to, or, or at least, maybe not necessary, but at least my assumption is, that you can share more about things with other people if you're physically there, which uh, raises the question for me is, how do you think about um, sort of return to the office, time in the office? Because obviously a Mm -hmm. lot of uh, younger employees um, have strong feelings about that too. But my own theory is that the amount of time that you physically um, spend with your coworkers uh, influences a lot your career path and your potential for advancement and just your ability to actually connect with people on multiple levels. I think finance is an apprenticeship culture. There's no doubt. I think at the same time, we all managed through two years of 
a lot of us did, not everybody in finance, mm-hmm. but a lot of us managed through two years of being wholly remote. I think when you blend, it gets harder and it requires more intentionality. But like I joked around with Jake earlier. I was thinking, is it Jake or Jacob? Like I mm-hmm. joked around with Jake yeah. earlier. And that to me felt like a human connection and just as being here in the room with you all. So I think it's, it is a bit of a, we actually don't know if he is a, a, a human being uh, or a bot. We don't have a, we've He's never, a great actually never, engineer. we've never seen him in person. So we don't know, but it's possible. <laughs> well, you should work on that, John. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's the point, right? Yeah. That Are you, you should. suggesting Jake is not real? It's an AI. Is this, now we're going into AI. Just talking about It's interesting that you asked the question about kind of work office presence. So our alumni, and and, and maybe we follow up at some point and have our alumni on a podcast with you all, um, They, I've asked them a lot about workplace flexibility. And again, they're early on in their careers for our current alumni population. And I think so that's often the population that's being said doesn't want to come to work. All of them want to be in the office. Mm-hmm. They also want to go to a doctor's appointment without it being like a big deal. Of course. Yeah. And to be able to say, hey, I'm going to work from home on Friday because I have a doctor's appointment. And it's just exactly what you just said. Yes. And of course, um, as opposed to like badging in and badging out and knowing what times people were in the office. I just got my teeth cleaned today just before this appointment. That, Ronan had no why, idea. But did you, I was going to say, did you ask for permission? No, 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 of course not. He, he asked for permission to do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad he's here That's for the So podcast. you're basically a Gen Z individual. Do you even I, know? I frankly it? found him in the kitchen. I'm like, thank God you're here. And Catherine's not here. Stuck with me alone. And, well, and I think it's getting comfortable without people yeah. having asked for permission because we trust them. And that, but they need guidance, right? Like we yeah. all, we yeah. all need to be trained and yes. it's not, and I, so it's not that, it's not that individuals don't want that guidance or they're kind of rejecting the discipline of mentorship and sponsorship and all the things we've been talking about. I think they just want the ability to say like, this is an inconvenient day to be in the office, or I'm going to be traveling with my family. Is it okay if I work remotely? Uh, but I find that our talent population, in particular girls who invest, craves the office environment. They just don't see it as the only way of advancing. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I have, I have a question. So, you know, believe it or not, a lot of asset managers listen to this podcast in particular. We do a lot of market structure wonky. We don't know who they are. Well. We don't know why they do. But yeah, they but they do. Like they it. do. Like when we go to conferences, people, people, people seem to love it. And we take a lot of pride in we were the first uh, trading venue ever funded by a consortium of buy side. So anyway, uh, we see on your site, there's over 125 asset management firms. How can other companies and individuals within the finance industry who are still listening to this, get involved. Like what, what's the webpage? What, what can they do? So girlswhoinvest.org. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. This is my favorite question. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, anyone's welcome to donate. We are a nonprofit. Firms can sign up and work with us to um, have our uh, scholars, which is what do we call our women as they're going through our education program, work as interns at their firms and give um, have the opportunity to work with our scholars firsthand. And they ultimately recruit from our talent population, which is incredibly exciting and inspiring moments to see. Um, and then they can volunteer. So they can work as ambassadors and mentors for our women and, and engage with us in a whole variety of ways. Cool. Nice plug, right? Nice Thank plug, you. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't even have to plant the plug. I, I so it, appreciate it. It's a group worth plugging for sure. No, but I mean, it's, also, it's a no-brainer. Yes, yeah. and it's a it's a group Get off your seats. Uh, and an individual who deserves a gift, I would say. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Don't get too excited. <laughs> we gave our podcast just your smooth, very own smooth segue. Very, very smooth. Your own pair of boxes and line socks. Oh, thank I you. I am wearing the black and white version. Oh, nice. Do you have your colorful one on? No, I, I, I sometimes no, I wonder if John washes his socks because he has them on every time we do a podcast. Well, I don't have them today. You've got more than one. Tell me you've more than one. I do. Okay. Yes. I All do. right. I feel yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Do we ask the question of questions? Or are we allowed to ask the question of questions? I, well, I guess we're compelled to. Yeah. We're, frankly, if we sorry, do it, test it and prepare you for this. Yeah. But we generally right. ask more spontaneous. guests yeah. what their favorite Wall Street movie is and why. <laughs> and it can be anything. Oh, my. Um, and I'm going to opt out of that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and. There's usually no, like, positive one. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't yeah. think yeah. of yeah. a winning answer. A book, yeah, there is no, there's no yeah. right answer, yes, yeah. but no. Uh, or books. We take books too. We take books too. But no, has anyone ever answered the book? Uh, I, I think some somebody has. Yeah, I could recommend a great book. There you go. Uh-huh. Yes, um, Undiversified by Katrina Dudley and Ellen Carr talks about many of the issues we've been talking about today. Very good. All See? right, there we you got go. There. there you go. Well, you've been a phenomenal guest. We appreciate Thank you, for you coming me. in. Uh, and you, and you put up patient. with our nonsense. You put up with our nonsense, which is not a small thing. So cheerio nice. for now. Do you want to do it? Goodness. This goodness. Is until, next, until next time. Th- doesn't he sound so legit? I can't yeah, wait till he does that in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> Over and out. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>